0: Well, this morning, I thought we would we would do a little backtrack. So if you are following along in our Luke series, we've been working through the book of Luke, and we skipped a story because there was a snow day, and so we didn't meet that day. We canceled because of snow, and we went on because the the series, the schedule keeps going, and different people were scheduled to speak. And so... Um, but the, I really didn't want to lose that story because it's, it's such a good story. And so I kept thinking, you know, where can we fit this in again? And, and so it worked out that next week and this week we could work it out so we could backtrack this week and then we'll get back on schedule next week. Tim's speaking again for us and he can uh, put it together and we can be on track. So because that's the most important thing really is being on track with the schedule. No, I'm just joking. Just joking. And I'm telling myself that. Um, so, uh, we are in our Luke series, uh, and the story, the passage today reminded me of a situation in my life when, uh, many years ago when I was dealing with, I was in the throes of my arthritis. So I had, uh, if you didn't know, I had arthritis in my hips, both hips, and, uh, it would flare up kind of from when I was 14, all the way to when I got a double hip replacement at 26, And so all between that time, I battled arthritis. So at 14, it wasn't, you know, I had a few flare-ups once or twice a year. And when I was 20-something in university, it was getting really bad. And it got worse and worse and worse until I had to have surgery. Um, So in the middle of my flare-ups, I I got one flare-up after another after another, and it just didn't seem to let up. And I can remember um, one day I was in my apartment, and... Um, probably there was someone there caring for me too. And, um, I couldn't move. I was in so much pain and I don't mean like I couldn't move around. I mean, like I couldn't move in the bed. I was in so much agony and pain. If I moved even a little, it would send shooting pain through my body. And so to go to the bathroom, I'd get up and I like very gingerly I'd get up and then in order to move from where I was to the bathroom, which was the next room over, I would, I would inch my toe like this along the floor, and then I would use my crutch, and I would do another step, and then I would inch my toe, and it would send shooting pain through my body, so much so that I would throw up along the way. So eventually, I, I talked to the doctor, and he was like, what are, what are you doing? Why don't I call an ambulance or something? Like, What's wrong with you? But at the time, I didn't know. I was like, oh, this is an emergency, but it was an emergency, and I can remember getting back and being in the bed and lying there, and I was in such a desperate state that I actually wanted to die. I thought, I just want to be out of my body. I would be, rather be dead right now than be in the pain I'm in. And in that moment, that's when I thought, oh, God, I need you to help me. I want to die. I'm in so much agony. So either will you kill me or will you help me? And then in that moment, it was like the room filled with the presence of God in a way that I've only experienced a few times ever in my whole life. And I could feel the presence of God fill the room to such an extent that as I was lying there, I thought, oh, I'm being healed. And then I moved. Ah, no, I'm not being healed. Okay, this is weird. So you're here, but you're not healing me. Okay. But suddenly this peace came over me and filled me and I was, I could endure it. I could endure it and go on. And eventually the doctor came and said all that to me and we got medication. We worked through it. But I can't, I'll never forget that experience of being at rock bottom and God coming and meeting me. And that's the story today. You know, Luke chapter 8 tells the story of two people who hit rock bottom. They were at the end of themselves. Both of them were desperate, both of them came in pain, and both of them came to Jesus with a need, a deep need. Remember Luke's message over and over and over. This is the message we keep saying. We keep seeing it story after story after story. Luke's message that the the kingdom of God is good news for everyone. The kingdom of God is good news for everyone. And this message resounds over and over and over through the story. And it's in our story this morning. Luke chapter 8 verses 40 to 56. Uh, Let's read it together. Now, when Jesus returned... So Jesus is returning from, he was on the other side of the lake, and he cast out a demon. Tim preached that message, it was a long time ago, and the people were afraid. And so Jesus left, he, they said, will you go away from us? And Jesus left, and so Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there was a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she'd spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment." And immediately, her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him. And how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter's dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear. Only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and the mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise! And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that someone should, uh, something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed but he charged them not to tell or to tell no one what had happened. Ooh, you can see why I didn't want to skip this one. This is a good one. Man, it's a good story. And our big idea this morning is that our hope is in Jesus who knows and restores. Our hope is in Jesus who knows and who restores. We need Jesus. We need Jesus. Thank you for that amen. We were talking about amen in our alpha group. <laughs> what is amen? Thank you, Dennis. Amen. We need Jesus. My grandpa, Smith, um, on my mother's side, he was a dairy farmer in California. He was a tough old dairy farmer, not like, well, Matt's tough, but Matt's not old. Anyway different dairy farms. And um, my grandpa, he was a tough old guy and he had his own journey with God. And, um, you know, he really, I think he had a hard time with religion and he had a hard time with God because he lost a daughter, a little girl. Um, she was two and, um, and that was really hard for him. I think he had a hard time processing that with God and with the church. And so, um, he kind of just was like done with it. And I can remember one day sitting out with him on the porch and he would always smoke his pipe and I'd go out when we'd go down to California and visit and we'd be sitting out on the porch and are, their property overlooked, all these mountains are beautiful. And so we'd sit out there and I can remember one time as a young, young boy talking to my grandpa about God because it concerned me, you know, I don't, I don't know what, how, where grandpa is with God. And so I was chatting with him and I was saying, you know, grandpa, you need, you need God. And he was like, oh God. God's just a crutch, just a crutch for weak people. And I was like, oh, well, and right away it came to my mind. Well, what about your pipe? What's that? You sure like having your pipe around. Isn't that kind of a crutch? And he was like, no, that's totally different. (laughs) And then I was like, I said, oh, well, I would think if you were like limping, you would want a crutch. In fact, (laughs) I would want two crutches, if I was limping, if I couldn't walk. And little did I know that later that would be the case for me. I would come to rely on crutches. Desperate. I loved my crutches. That's how I moved around when I had trouble walking. This is the thing. Our story is two stories. It's two requests and two kinds of people and two approaches, two stories, but both of them have a need. Both of them are without hope, apart from Jesus. First, there's Jairus, this guy who comes. He's the stand-up guy with a good reputation. He's the synagogue leader, which means he's a person of reputation. He would know the Bible well. He would be a man of prayer. His family would be a family that's respected. His 12-year-old daughter, though, is sick. All I have to do is picture Maddie. Maddie is just turned 13. So I'm um, think of Maddie. She's 12. If Maddie were my only child and I'd watch her as a baby growing up and becoming a toddler, and then and she was my sole focus, and that was she was my life. La- and there she is at twelve, now with a fever, and she's dying. We're gonna lose her. What would I feel? What burden would be on my heart to find something that could help her? And then we've got this woman who kind of interrupts everything. And we don't, we don't know her name. We don't really know much about her. We know, though, that she's hemorrhaging. She's bleeding, and it doesn't stop. It won't stop. And she's had 12 years of rejection and despair and suffering because of this condition. 12 years of pure misery. And the doctors have tried to help her. And I picture like, okay, well, the doctors, have, she's paid different doctors. I went through that. We went, and you go to the regular doctor, and then you go to the specialist. And then when the specialist can't help you, you go wherever else you can find help. And the specialist used to make fun of me. He'd say, oh, I'd never do that. And I'd say, you don't know what you'd do if you felt like I feel. you go to the naturopath. You go to the chiropractor. You go to the whoever. They could be the quackiest quack in the world. You're just going to go try it. Which I tried every possible remedy because you're desperate. And this woman, she was desperate, and she spent her money. For help that never came, no one could help her or make her well. Maybe some of you have experienced that feeling of coming to the end of yourself. And I don't know what it, what it was for you or what it is for you, but it could be critical illness or relational conflict or a barren womb or financial struggle or family strife or grown-up kids that you're worried about or chronic disease or miscarriage or emotional turmoil, or job stress, or ongoing addiction, or the list goes on of things that bring us to the end of ourselves, where we realize we just can't do it. And I think that that's an important opportunity in our lives. When we get to that point where we realize we just can't do it, because the thing is, all those things that I just listed there, there's a deeper and bigger problem than just those things. But those things help us to realize it. And what it is, we, the deep-rooted problem we call sin. is deep in that. It's rooted in the world. It's the brokenness that we experience. And it's the reality that I can't save myself. I can't make myself well. It doesn't matter how hard I work. It doesn't matter how much I achieve or how good I am. I can't fix this problem. I can't make myself well. I'm not enough to meet my own need. This is what it says in Ephesians 2, uh, chapter 2, verses 2 to 4. It says, we all did it. This is in the message. We all did it. All of us doing what we felt like doing, when we felt like doing it. All of us in the same boat. It's a wonder God didn't lose his temper. And do away with a whole lot of us. We have all, all of us done it. All of us are in that same boat, marked by sin, experiencing the brokenness of the world. It doesn't really matter whether you're the synagogue leader or you're the synagogue outcast, both of these people need Jesus. Jairus approaches Jesus publicly. He comes and he falls down before Jesus with the crowds there, and he makes his case before Jesus. And he has a right to expect that maybe if anyone is Jesus is going to come to their house and help them, it would be Jarius, right? Jairus, I mean, he's the guy. He's a he's, he's stand-up guy. And he comes publicly before Jesus. Now, the woman, she comes the opposite way. She comes privately. She comes, and she doesn't even want to bug Jesus. She doesn't even want Jesus to know. She just says, if I just touch him, I could be healed. And it's a, it's a secret. I'll just, I'll come and do it. I believe it's going to happen, but I don't need any attention. I don't need Jesus to, to look at me or anything. I'll just touch him, and I'll, it will be enough. And there comes a point where you and I need to come to Jesus. And it, I don't think it matters if you come publicly. Or you come privately in your room, on your knee, in your bed, wherever, by yourself. But we need to come to Jesus and admit that we can't do this. That we have a need that we can't meet. That we're not strong enough or good enough or smart enough or beautiful enough to meet our own needs. And that's the moment where we encounter Jesus and his grace. And it's beautiful. This is what the rest of that verse says. The one that says, it's a wonder God didn't lose his temper and do away with a lot of us. Oh, I hate that verse. (laughs) The next verse says this, instead of freaking out and doing away with us, immense in mercy and with an incredible love, he embraced us. He took our sin dead lies and made us alive in Christ. And he did all this with a lot of help from Jonathan. Oh, no, wait, it doesn't say that. He did all this on his own with no help from us. He did it. And then he picked us up and he set us down in highest heaven in the company with Jesus, our Messiah. We need Jesus. Jesus knows. Jesus knows. You know, all through the the accounts of Jesus in the Gospels, in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, you see over and over Jesus meeting people and he knows. So like the Pharisees are all there and they're trying to trick him and they say things and they ask him tricky questions and Jesus always seems to know. He always gives a good answer. He always seems to find his way around the trick. He never just falls into the trap. Or there's other people like he meets the Samaritan woman and I need to say as an aside, last week I said... Um, that he met the Samaritan woman on that same trip. I was talking about the, going through the Samaritan village, and it wasn't the same trip. It was early in John, and he was actually going the other way, so I wanted to just correct that. I don't want to give you wrong information and you start quoting. My pastor's teaching me wrong. Um, anyway, he meets the Samaritan woman at the well, and... He knows all about her. And when he talks to her and says, I know all about you, and he tells her exactly who she is, she's shocked and surprised. And she goes back and tells everyone, hey, everyone, there's this guy who knows everything about me. I think he's the savior. Come and see. Or Jesus sees Zacchaeus in the tree and he says, hey, I'm going to go to your house. And everyone's like, what? Doesn't he know who that is? Yes. He knows exactly who that is. Jesus knows Zacchaeus. He knows he's a tax collector. Nobody's going to go to his house. Jesus knows. And much to the horror of his host, Jesus knows exactly who's washing his feet with her hair and and weeping over him. Jesus knows. And Jesus knows who's touching him. It's almost a comic scene, though. Here's Jesus in this crowd of people. This crazy crowd. All these people are moving. And the word, the Greek word for press... Is it, it's a strong word. It means to choke or to suffocate. Like claustrophobics, beware of these kind of crowds. Now, the next slide is a, is a, that's a different kind of crowd. That's not a Canadian crowd. So when you picture a crowd, you often pick a, picture a Canadian crowd. We went on the SkyTrain, I went on the, with the boys, and we were in a crowd, and they were like, wow, there's a lot of people. I was like, this is not a lot of people on this SkyTrain. It looks like a lot of people, but you, let's go somewhere else. Like I've been to some other countries where this is like 10% of the people would be on this train. So this is a crowd, they don't, like a Middle Eastern crowd is not, they don't have the same personal space bubble you do. So a Canadian crowd, everyone's got a little bit of space. We're not going to, you know, in a, some other cultures, pff, there is no space. There's no space bubble. This is the kind of crowd we're talking about. Everyone is pressing on Jesus pressing and pushing and jostling and crowding and choking and suffocating kind of crowd. And Jesus stops everyone and says, stop, 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 stop. I need some space around me. Okay, who touched me? Right? The joke is, everyone says, it wasn't me. I didn't touch you. No, I didn't touch you. And Peter's like, (laughs) Peter says, this is ridiculous. Stop denying it. We were all touching you. What do you mean? Everyone's touching you, Jesus. Why are you being like this? You're being weird. Jesus says, no, someone touched me. Why does Jesus make such a big deal about this? Why not just let this one go? Does he just want to draw attention to it? What's the deal? One Bible commentator says this, somebody touched him with the conscious, voluntary, dependent touch of faith, reaching forth its hand expressly to have contact with him. This is, And this only Jesus acknowledges and seeks out. Someone was reaching out for him. And Jesus says, that's a big deal to me. Your pain and your suffering is a big deal to me. And when you reach out to me, it's a big deal. And I'm going to make it a big deal. It's not a little thing. It's a big thing to me because Jesus cares. He cares. He knows, and he cares. There's a story in the Old Testament of Hagar. She's like this side character. You've got Abraham and Sarah. They're the ones, you know, the patriarch, and they're the ones, are gonna, they have Isaac, and he's going to be the one to carry the line, and Israel will be, that's the line. And Jesus is going to come through that line. And you've got this side character, Hagar, and Abraham, when he was, they weren't sure if they could have a baby. They're getting old, and so He was given the handmaiden, and so they had a baby, another baby, called Ishmael. And then Sarah got pregnant, and then there's two babies. And God said, it's not Ishmael, it's Isaac. Now, Hagar is this woman, right? And so there's all this conflict in the family. And eventually, Hagar gets sent out with Ishmael. They say, we can't have this conflict going on because Isaac's the one. God's chosen Isaac, and Isaac's the one. So we're going to send you off. They gave her stuff, and they sent her off. So Hagar goes off and she gets off in the desert and she runs out of water. And she's there without water and Ishmael's dying. And in a way you think, well, this isn't, the the story is this way. This is the side story. So what's going to happen? She's there and she turns away from her son Ishmael and she says, I can't even watch, I'm going to look this way because I can't watch him die. That's what's happening. We're going to die. And God comes and says to her, Hagar, I hear you. I've heard him. And I'm going to come and I'm going to act for you. Look over there. And suddenly there's a spring of water. And she goes and gets the water and she feeds, gives him the water. And God makes a promise. I'm going to make a nation out of you too. There's this other promise that's happening. God's doing something. When she first met God, when she ran away, she called him the God who sees. The God who sees. This is the God we're talking about. A God who sees and who hears and who knows what's happening. So what do you do when God waits? Jairus uh, is standing impatiently. I picture him there. I put myself in Jairus's position. Jairus is hurrying. Come on, Jesus. Come on. She's dying. I don't know how much time is left. Come on, Jesus. And Jesus stops ever. Stop, stop, stop. I want to know who touched me. This could take a while, but we're going to figure it out. And Jerry, I, I picture Jerry's like, "What? You're going to stop? No, let's do that later. Can we just do that later? We got to go. We got to go. Come on, okay, Jesus. Oh, someone got healed. Okay, great. Now, come on, Jesus. Come on, Jesus. Seems to be taking a long time. Come on, Jesus. And while he finishes, someone comes up and says, "It's too late. You missed her by minutes." She's dead. What happens in Jerry's his heart? What does that feel like? That cold hand closing in on your heart. He missed it. Jesus missed it. He was doing, I don't even know what he was doing. Who cares about that lady? My daughter's dead. Jesus, why were you waiting around here? What's the deal? But Jesus knows Jesus knows. He's never surprised or caught off guard. He's never at a loss. He's never stuck. He's never paralyzed in fear and indecision like I might be or you might be. He's never late. Jesus says in the New American Standard to Jairus, do not be afraid any longer. Or in the ESV, do not fear. Do not fear. Don't, don't be afraid anymore. Only believe and she will be made well. See, there's two stories. There's two people and there's two approaches. Maybe you connect with the woman. You feel like when I hear that story, that, that's like me. I am lost in the crowd. I feel like God's missed me somehow. Or I feel like maybe I don't deserve to be seen by God. Maybe you're carrying that long suffering. You've experienced pain for a long time and you've been in something for a long time and you're just under it and you wear the impossibility like, a, like despair. You carry it around with you. Or maybe you're like Jarius. Maybe you hear that and you think, yeah, that's more like me. Like, you know, maybe you're a respected church member and you're a dedicated follower. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long, long time and you felt sure Jesus would help. And then Jesus didn't help the way you thought he would. He didn't come through in the timing that you had set out. And you've been faithful and you think, why didn't this go my way? God, I'm serving you. So, hey, how about a little bit this way? A little reciprocity? God, isn't that how it works? And you need to hear this, either of you, that God knows. Jesus knows. Isaiah 40, verse 27 to 31 says this. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. And Jesus restores. Jesus restores. This is good news that Jesus is in the business of restoration. That's the business he's in. He's in the restoration business. The making new. The redemption business. a new earth, that's the promise. He is making all things new. In Revelation 21, it says, And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. That's a great verse. Jesus says, I am making all things new. Everything's going to be new. When Jesus proclaims his kingdom, it's a kingdom that's turning old things upside down. It's changing the way it works. There's a few different ways this happens in our story. The first way is that the unclean becomes clean. The unclean becomes clean. Mosaic law, way back, way back, way back, the law laid out, for the people of Israel coming out of slavery, they were not a nation. They were like, well, they were a nation, but they were in slavery. And when they came out and they became their own nation, God gave them the law. Some of the law had to do with their relationship with God, how they worship, how they, how they experience sacrifice and forgiveness. Part of it was how they interact with each other. So there's all these community law. How do, you, well, how do we deal with problems and conflict? And then there's some just like, Basic, like, sanitation stuff. Like, all your new people out here in the desert and, like, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on. And the law was given to them for them to follow. Now, so Leviticus 15 has some things to say about this woman. It says this. So just cover yours if you have a problem with blood. (laughs) If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity... Or if she is a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge she shall continue in uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies, all the days of her discharge, shall be to her as a bed of her impurity. And everything on which she sits shall be unclean. As in the uncleanness of her menstrual impurity. And whoever touches these things shall be unclean. And shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Do you hear a word over and over and over? What word is it? He. No. No. I'm just kidding. (laughs) The word unclean. Over and over and over. This is the deal. This is the woman. She's dealing with this situation. She has blood. And the blood makes her unclean, and everything she touches unclean. It means she's not allowed in the synagogue. It means she's not allowed her husband. If her husband's going to be near her or touch anything she touches, he's going to be unclean. And everything she touches is unclean. Everywhere she goes is unclean. Picture the lepers. This is like just same. Twelve years of dealing with this. Socially and ceremonial unclean every day for 12 years. Consider her embarrassment at having to explain why she touched Jesus. Why are you in the crowd? Who did you touch here? What? You touched Jesus? Jesus says this to her Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace that word well is the word sozo it's a, it's the same word jesus uses it sometimes to say you've been saved you've been made well you're healed you're whole all of you all of you that's what i'm about and instead of dirty things making jesus unclean jesus is making the unclean clean he says i'm making things new He touches lepers and he eats with tax collectors and sinners and he lets the prostitute wash and kiss his feet and he blesses or heals the bleeding woman from the hem of his garment. It doesn't matter. Jesus is okay because he's making things new. Jesus takes the unclean and makes it clean. Jesus takes the dead and brings it to life is the second thing. There's a funny moment where (laughs) I wasn't, I'm not sure if Jesus is telling a fib or if he's confused, what? What did Jesus bring up the sleeping thing for? And so I looked, I was like, well, I got to look this up. So I looked it up in the Greek. And do you know what the sleeping, what that word sleep is in Greek? It means sleeping. It just means sleeping. There's no other meaning for it. He really just says sleeping. And then, oh, Jesus, what are you doing? Why, why would you say that? Never laughs at him? Like, why are you, that, why are you saying that? That's not, is that not true? She's dead. What's the deal? Jesus isn't the first or the last person to use sleep and death interchangeably. And he does it at another point, too. He talks about Lazarus who died. He says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. And Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking a rest in sleep. So Jesus is confusing other, the disciples at another point, too, talking about death and sleep interchangeably. In the Psalms, the psalmist says in uh, Psalm 13, consider and answer me, O Lord my God, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Or in Job 14, he says, so a man lies down and rises not again till the heavens are no more. He will not awake or be roused out of his sleep. And there's this interchange with sleep and death. And I think there's a reason because death is not the end. Death is not the end for us. You know what? I've never seen anyone raised from the dead. Yet. <laughs> I haven't. That doesn't mean I don't believe it's possible. That doesn't mean I don't I haven't prayed for people actually to be raised from the dead. And the reason is because Jesus was raised from the dead. And Paul says if we believe Jesus could be raised from the dead, then we have to also believe that resurrection is possible, that we will be raised up with him and that resurrection is here. This is what we're about. This is the picture. In the kingdom, death isn't the end. It doesn't have the last word. It doesn't get the final say. And Jesus, and it says her spirit returned to her. And that's the picture. This is death. Our spirit leaves our body, which is the shell, the physical part of us. But the spirit goes on. The spirit, that's the eternal life John talks about all the time in his gospel. Luke talks about the kingdom. and John talks a lot about eternal life. This life that goes on. That's eternal. C.S. Lewis says our, our lives here on earth are like the cover page of a book. We're so wrapped up in this, oh, our life, are we getting, do we get enough? Did we get all these experiences? Did I do it? all these things? C.S. Lewis says it's like the cover page of your life. Like you have a whole book that's going to be written in eternity. This is just the little cover page. It's this short little thing. It's not the end. Death is not the end. And Jesus promises eternal life for all who believe. What does it mean that the unclean will become clean and the dead will come to life for us? What does that mean? I think it means we have to let go of our fear. We have to stop being afraid. Afraid of people, afraid of death, afraid of fear. You put the thing in there. We have to give up cynicism and despair. We have to trade all of these things for trust, faith that Jesus is going to do it. Our dependency is in Jesus, his sufficiency, his ability to do it. And we become people who bring about the new order. We become people who take the unclean and make it clean because of Jesus. We're the ones who bring dead bring life out of dead bring things that are broken into wholeness because of Jesus. This is the kingdom he's called us to be part of and to usher in. Romans 15:13 says, "May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope." Our hope is in Jesus, who knows and who restores. That's who he is. That's what he's about. So it doesn't matter who you are or where you're from. We all need Jesus. We need him from the very first point of encounter where we realize we're broken in our sin all the way to being Christians for a really, really long time and realizing you're doing it on your own and you need Jesus every day. You need his life and his presence. Secondly, whatever happens or is happening in your life You need to know and hear in your heart that Jesus knows and he cares and he's present, he's close with you. Thirdly, Jesus is in the business of restoring, of making things new. Sometimes that looks like healing, where we are healed and restored, and sometimes that looks like our hearts are healed and restored. And other points, like like my story at the beginning, we experience his presence with us and something happens and we're able to walk through whatever we're enduring. Because of him. Let's pray. God, I, I, um, you know, there's so many uh, platitudes we could say about you, so many things um, we could just say, oh, God's like this, or Jesus, you're like that. But Lord, um, I know there's people sitting here who need to experience you. They need to encounter you with their heart. They need to know that you care and that you're present. They need to know that you see them and that you're about restoration. And so, um, Lord, I pray that whatever situation we're in, whatever um, road we've come here, whatever our story is, that uh, we know that you know our story. And so I pray that this morning, even as we move into response next, that um, you would soften our hearts to be able to, to turn to you or to even to just proclaim our need before you and to invite you to come. You say that if we draw near to you, you'll draw near to us. And so God, we, I, I, my prayer is for all of us here that we'd be able to, um, put out our hands and experience your love and your goodness this morning in whatever our situation is. So will you come and do that Lord? Even as we move into responses, we, um, Lord, would you do that in our hearts? Would you speak to us and meet us? Thank you, Lord. Amen.